Okay, announcements are over. And if you have a Bible, would you turn to the book of James? If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand and someone would love to bring you a Bible. Turn in your app if you want to James chapter 1. We have an extremely important text here this morning. And I'd like to read it out for us. So James chapter 1, James is one of the last books of the Bible. It's actually a letter, and uh, it's very near the end. So if you can't find it, look in the table of contents, or just kind of go to the very back. It'll be very close to the end of your Bible. And so starting in verse 5 of James chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, brother or sister, actually it could read, and the rich in his or her humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, they will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." This is God's word. Let's take a moment for prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we pray, Jesus, we ask today that, Jesus, you would reveal to us what your word has for us. We ask your Holy Spirit to fill me so that I can be a servant for us. That what I say will be helpful to our church family, no matter what I have to say. Jesus, we're asking for a miracle, which is to simply have you speak through me. Would you open our hearts that we can listen and receive the word that you have for us? Jesus, may you prepare our own hearts for what you have for us this morning. And it's in your name I pray these words. Amen. Amen. Well, when I was a kid... There was a phrase, it's not really when I was a kid, I use it as a parent as well, but when I was a kid, there was a phrase we used when we got frustrated with other immature kids on the playground. A little known fact, well it's not a fact actually, Uh, 75% of statistics are made up on the spot, so I'm making up one now. So much can be learned from watching kids play on a playground, right? Have you ever watched kids play on a playground? They play out a lot of real life. So if there's one kid on the playground that just 
continually is a pain. You know that kid, right? Maybe you've been that kid. That kid that copies everything that you do. You remember that kid? They, they copy what you say and, you know, you're like, hey, I'm going to go tell mom. They're like, hey, I'm going to go tell mom. They do that sort of stuff, right? I know you are, but what am I? Remember that phrase? I know you are, but what am I? Rubber, glue, sticks to me, something along those lines, that kind of a phrase. And at some point, the group of kids just kind of go, grow up. You ever done that? You ever said that? You ever heard that? You ever had that said to you? Oh, grow up, right? We use it now sometimes even as parents. When we're at wit's end and all we have is immaturity before us and there's kind of no rationale that really works And so we just use this phrase, would you just grow up? Now here's the crazy thing, is that I really think, not in a condescending way, but in in a very real way, that this letter of James written to a number of Christians is his way of reminding the Christians, would you just grow up? Would you grow up? You see, there's a, there's a myth out there that, that God only wants us to be happy, and so he gives us whatever makes us happy, but that's not actually true. Sometimes what he gives brings happiness. He ultimately brings joy, and joy and happiness are not always the same thing. But when God has children, he wants them to mature. Just like every parent who is really excited about the baby, and, and that's all great. We have tons of babies, and so you can watch us. You can watch people. I've noticed that people that don't normally talk like babies, they have babies, and then they start talking like babies to their babies, right? This happens to us without even trying. It happens. But when babies grow up, we don't expect that they talk like babies. We don't even like it. We want them to eventually mature, and we're not impressed with a 50-year-old who's still actually talking and thinking like, and eating and acting like a baby. And so James, who is actually a pastor, he's actually Jesus' little brother. He doesn't even state that he's Jesus' little brother. He calls himself a servant of Jesus. He has some words of growing up to his flock, so to speak, to the Christians that he knows. And he writes these letters. And everything that we're going to talk about this morning is, is hinged on this idea of growing up and maturing in our faith. Growing up and maturing in our faith. We're in this series of, uh, on James called Prove It. And we called it this because there's a lot of questions that were asked. There's a lot of questions people have of us. Like, do we have real faith? Do we really listen to God's word? Do we really, do we really believe that Our identity isn't in how much money we make. And so we've called this series Prove It because there's an opportunity for us to prove how real our faith is. Not to Jesus, but to ourselves. To show and to test the character of our own faith and what we really believe about Jesus. And there's a chance every week, I think, for us to prove it in a way. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, in some ways, this is your chance to kind of look in at a church, and and this is a family chat with a pastor in his church. And you get a chance to kind of look in and watch how does a pastor who's trying to mature and grow up and help his church understand how to grow and mature, what does he say? And if we're going going to grow up, I I mean, to me, this is the, the first question mark 
we have to have out of this morning. That if you're not interested in growing and maturing in your faith, some of this is going to be very frustrating for you. You're going to find it harsh. You're going to find it um, uninteresting. But if you want to actually grow and mature in your faith, how would you go about that? And James has, I think, some great help for us. He says, first of all, we're gonna, you're going to need wisdom. You're going to need wisdom. Second of all, he said, you're going to need humility if you're going to grow and mature in your faith. And third of all, you're going to have to grow in your understanding of God's testing in your life. You're going to have to grow in this and understand the reality of this. And so we're going to look at these three things. Getting wisdom, getting humility, and getting a deeper understanding of the testing of God. So let's dig into the text. In chapter 1 there, starting in verse 5, it, he, starts, he doesn't start off, he's actually just continuing a thought. So if you're wondering what that thought is all about, you can actually uh, go to last week's message when it's up online. At least refer to that particular text, uh, verses 2 uh, to 4 there. It says, if any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask God. He's not just talking about this idea of generally getting wisdom. He's referring to something previously. That he's assuming that you're reading the whole letter in its context, and he's assuming that, that you, you want to mature. So that's the assumption I think the writer is making in this text. And so if you're going to do this, if you're going to embrace the trials that God brings into your way, and, and here's how we would define trials. Trials are anything that threaten your relationship with Jesus Christ, that threaten your relationship with God. So it doesn't matter what it is. Like in a, in a, a group this size, there could be all kinds of different trials. Some would be really extreme, some would be not that big a deal. But it doesn't really matter what the trial is. If it threatens your relationship with Christ, it would be considered a trial according to James. And he says the purpose of these trials is not to drive you away from God, but to draw you closer in deeper faith to God. Because trials help develop perseverance. Perseverance can be defined as being able to carry a load for a long period of time. There's the image of kind of climbing up a mountain with a backpack on your back. That's, that, that would be an image of perseverance. Being able to withstand something, a trial of some kind for a long period of time. I mean, that's such, a, such an important thing for us to learn as adults. Right? When you go on trips, what's the one number one question that kids ask? When are we going to get there? Right? Why? Because they don't have a sense of perseverance yet. They don't know what it means to sit in a seat for a long period of time. When you're an adult, you are wondering, but you don't persistently ask. Why? Because you know how long things take. You've probably been there. You've built up a little bit of a tolerance, so to speak, to traveling for a long period of time. And, and this is what trials actually do to us. This is why God doesn't remove them. In fact, he allows them into our life because he knows that they develop perseverance. They develop strong faith. So James says, if you want to do that, how are you going to actually embrace the trials around you? How are you even going to see these in a new light? He says, well, first you're going to need wisdom. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, don't confuse wisdom here with knowledge. Sometimes... 
We in our culture confuse these two. I know some people who are very smart and not wise. It's very possible for this, by the way. Knowledge is something you can learn at university or in a book. You can be taught. Wisdom is something that exclusively is reserved actually for God. I don't know if you knew that, but actually God describes wisdom as knowing him and fearing him and respecting him and acknowledging him as the one in control. That's where he says, if you want wisdom, that's where you start. Which is why I say wisdom isn't something you can just learn by going to church every Sunday or taking a class. Wisdom is something that you need from God, that God gives, that he reserves for himself. And so if he has it and he's going to deliver it, doesn't it make sense? If you need it to embrace the trials that are coming your way, doesn't it make sense that you should be able to ask him for it? And that's what James says. Let him ask God. Ask him. You don't understand what the trials are doing in your life yet? Ask him. What are these doing in my life? What are you trying to show me here, God? I don't quite understand. I understand you want to mature me, but I don't, I'm not making the connection between some of the ridiculous things that I'm facing and how you're maturing my faith. I mean, is there anyone here who's ever questioned God at what he's done? Anyone? Who said, I, you know what, God, respectfully so, I don't know what you're doing. And if you left it up to me, I would do it very differently. Anyone ever even thought that? You don't have to admit it. Why is that? It's because you need wisdom. That's why. You and I need wisdom. And he says, he actually says, God gives generally to all without reproach. Who uses the word reproach? Anyone? Right? No one uses the word reproach. I assume that. It's actually a really good word. Uh, it's, it's the Greek word basically for no hesitation. So when you see that word reproach, you should read, he gives generously without hesitating. Isn't that much clearer for us? Like, we're going to install an elder next week. And actually, one of the qualifications for an elder is that they should be above reproach. That's actually how it's written. Some of us are like, what, what does that mean, above reproach? That means that we're going to install an elder who we have no hesitations about. Does that mean they're perfect? No. Have you met Tim? He's not perfect, right? Yet. It's getting there. We're working with him. I'm kidding. I'm going to pay for that later, aren't I, Tim? But here's the deal. When it comes to the issue of elder, we don't have reservations. We don't have hesitations. We're not like, uh, gosh, I'm not really sure I could go either way. I have no hesitations. Okay? Now, that was for free. Let's go back to the text. God gives wisdom generously with no hesitation. And that, isn't that a good word? Like, this is a promise you can take to the bank. Like, there are other things that I'm sure God will hesitate on. But this is one area that he says, I will not hesitate to give wisdom to those who ask me. Wisdom for what? 
Wisdom to embrace the trials. If God's wanting to mature your faith, if Jesus wants you to grow up and develop in him, and you say, I would like to mature and develop, and I would like to understand how you want me to do that, but I can't put the dots together. Would you help me put the dots together? Guess what he says? I will do that. Generously. Now that's a great word for us. That's a great word for us. I think here there's a continuation of James's thought. He says, let, let him ask in faith. I think I'm moving ahead here, Rob, a little bit faster than I should be. I think you're going to have to help me because I'm not. Nope. Let's go back here one. He uses a, a word picture here to help us. That if God gives without hesitation, if God gives generously to those who ask for wisdom, doesn't it make sense that you should not hesitate in the way that you ask? Doesn't that make sense to you? So if God doesn't hesitate to give you wisdom when you need it to help you embrace, doesn't it make sense that he said, all I ask is that you don't hesitate in trusting who I am? That's why it says, but let them ask in faith with no doubting. This doesn't mean you've never had doubts in your life. Uh, that's clarified there in verse 6 or verse 7 where it says, don't be double-minded. What does it mean to be double-minded? It means to be wishy-washy. That's the best phrase I could come up with. You ever met someone who's wishy-washy? Are you someone who's wishy-washy? You ever, I, I go shopping with my family quite a bit, and I occasionally encounter this. Which shirt do you want to get? Uh, I don't know. The red one looks good on me, but the blue one's cheaper. It's double-mindedness, right? It's two different directions. I could go either way. This one I'll save money. This one I'll look better. I don't know which is better for me. I had this conversation this morning. How, how do your boots fit? They're too tight. Why are you wearing them? Because they look great. I don't get that. To me, that's double-mindedness, right? Right. It's not, it's not my wife. It's not my wife. Sorry. Thank you. Okay, it's the split decision. So what James says is, if you're going to ask, I'm going to pay for that later. If you're going to ask, don't hesitate. When you ask for wisdom, do you mean it? Do you want it? Do you want God to teach you this? Or is he just, he's just a fill-in for what could possibly work? I mean, this is the way we act all the time. We have our bases covered. We're like, you know what, if God doesn't work out, then I can go this direction. That's double-mindedness. God says at least... Ask with integrity. Integrity means no double-mindedness. doesn't mean perfection. It means I'm not double-minded about this. I would encourage you to reflect on your own prayer life, the way you act or think about God. Does it reflect a double-mindedness? Like is your prayer life based upon God just filling in the blanks and if he doesn't, you got a good backup plan? And you wonder why sometimes the prayer it's not answered. Sometimes it's because God says, I don't, 
I don't know what you think. Not that he doesn't know, but he's like, which is it? Which is it? Do you really want this? You see, this is why we called this series Prove It, because it's, in a sense, it's even just going through the text and reflecting on this is a chance for us to be Prove It. God says, you want wisdom? Prove it. Ask earnestly. Single-mindedness. Don't hesitate. Do you think I'm good? Do you think I want to do this? I'm not, I'm not a backup plan that nothing else works out, that I'm just going to be here. I'm the creator of the universe. And I love to give wisdom. I want you to ask like you mean it. For some of us, I think this is a hard word. But I think it's a good word for us. I think even in this, it purifies some of our maturity. It shows us where we're really at. The word picture there is like a wave. I don't know if you've ever watched waves. I don't know if you've ever been that bored. You sat by a lake and just watched. Not ocean where it's just kind of tide waves, but kind of this waves. We used to study this, what is it, physics, I think? I don't know. Engineering, something like that. Waves go where the wind goes. Waves don't get to decide what they're going to do. Waves just kind of go with the flow. They go with the culture of the wind, so to speak. James says, when you ask kind of in this double-minded way, you're just like a wave that is at the mercy of the culture. And the truth is, some of us are at the mercy of our culture. We don't have a rudder. We just kind of go with whatever our culture is telling us. Follow your heart. Forgetting for the fact that our hearts are sometimes really corrupt and don't know what they want. Forgetting that sometimes following culture where it goes hurts a lot of people. And James says, don't follow your heart. Ask wisdom so that Jesus can guide your heart. The second thing he says is found in verses 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's not talking about a particular rich man here or men in particular. It's actually talking generally about people. But there's this contrast going on that that James wants us to understand. Now you have to remember a little bit of the context of this letter. It's written to people who have been scattered because of economic persecution in some ways. And so when the church began, actually what happened is they were, they were scattered through persecution. That's why he writes at the very beginning there to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. As the, the people who followed God and followed Jesus Christ were dispersed across the known world at the time, they had, they had moments of deep discouragement. And as they showed up in places where they suddenly were the minority, the complete minority in their culture, they were taken advantage of. Because they followed Jesus, they could be left out of business deals that normally they would have been able to have some credibility. They didn't have any protection like we would have from our government or anything like that. 
And so there would have been really wealthy people that would have kind of preyed on these people. In order to make a living, these people would have ended up selling their land or selling things that were really important to them. And because they were in need of food, they, they could jack up the prices. This stuff never happens today, by the way, right? The wealthy never take advantage of the poor today. So thankfully, we're long past that. Did anyone catch my sarcasm there? Okay, so you know how this is. You know this still happens. That there, there is places in our world where people are taken advantage of specifically because they're poor and don't have resources. And the wealthy people were preying in on this. They didn't care. It's an opportunity to make good money. So when James writes to them, this is something that means a lot to these people. They're in this. I know some of you, the second thing I would say if some of you are like, you would put yourself in the poor category, but I would have to say to you that's not true. The majority of us who live in this, in North America, are not poor, even though we may not, we may even live below the poverty line. The definition of poor is you don't have enough food for the day. There's very few of us who fit actually in that category. So we're actually the rich people in this story if we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with the text. So try not to excuse yourself like, I'm a student, so I'm poor. No, you're a student. You're actually quite wealthy on the wide spectrum of the world. Some of us are really wealthy. According to the way we would mark wealth in the world, I am very wealthy. I rarely consider myself that. That is not what I tell my children when they ask for something when we go shopping. I'm one of the wealthiest people in the world. I'm in the top 5%. I never say that. So I understand what it means to want to distance yourselves from this text. But here's what the text is trying to drive at. What James is trying to say is, don't base your identity on whether you have money or you don't. It doesn't matter, he says. So he's talking to poor people generally commentators and scholars are kind of undecided on whether this is a Christian person or a not Christian person. I personally think that it's a Christian person that he would be talking about. He would be talking to a Christian wealthy person. But I could be wrong about that. But this is what James seems to be saying. If you're poor, guess what? You're wealthy in Jesus. If you're rich, guess what? Your wealth doesn't really come from your wealth. It's in Jesus. So it actually doesn't matter whether you consider yourself wealthy or not wealthy. What matters, James says, is where your identity is. Now, I don't know very many things like why this conversation about money so quick and early in the text. Honestly, from my very few years of pastoral experience, it seems probably the number one primary place where people seem to get tested is in the money department. Amen? Is there anything that calls your prayer life out more than lack of money? Anyone? Right? Is there anything that tests your faith in God like the, the thought of going without money? I, I don't know if there is. This is why this is a very real issue for us, is that James is trying to say, I know that a primary trial that we will have is, what do we think of our identity when we have wealth or when we don't? 
This could be the primary issue for you and me. Do we find our comfort, our safety, our security from what we have? And if we feel we don't have, are we looking for our comfort and our security and our identity to be in what we could have? See, either way, it doesn't matter. Some people say, you know, money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. We're the root of all evil. Money just has this funny way of surfacing whatever's in our heart. This is why Jesus talks so much about money. And that's why we can legitimately say when we ask for money, we're trying to help you mature in your faith because nothing will, will say, do I really believe in what's going on here at Urban Grace like the call to support with your finances? Especially when you don't think you have extra to give. See how that's not really about fundraising, that's about helping you understand what is in your actual heart. This is what James is trying to get at. You want to mature in your faith? You better figure out where your identity is because when wealth comes, when poverty comes, you'll find out. It's a strong test for us. This is why he says, remember wealthy person doesn't last. Remember it doesn't last. He used another word picture. What's that word picture? You ever seen like green grass flowers in the summertime, you've been like, man, there's just so much moisture here. This thing is just beautiful. And then the fall, you're like, man, that's amazing. It's just brown. There's nothing left. Right? This is what James is trying to say. It's like that. Wealth is like that. One day it's here in great bounty. And the next day it's gone. I have yet to see a preacher at a funeral say, I'm so glad this person made so much money because they can carry so much with them as they go. I've never heard that. Why? Because money stays here. It doesn't last. And James actually pits this against our identity in Jesus, which he says does last. He does that later in the text. In fact, that's the very next few verses. But poor person here this morning, if you consider yourself poor, or maybe that seems derogatory to you, without funds, financially challenged, let's put it that way. This isn't the comfort and identity you think it is. It's just as fleeting. So James says, You say you really have deep faith and that it doesn't matter how much you have or don't have? Says, it, will, it will get proved. You will have an opportunity to prove it. Here's a moment that we can just say, if you're new to Christianity, here's an opportunity for you to say, that identity, true identity, Long-lasting identity can only be found in Jesus Christ, in someone that's long-lasting or eternal. Only Jesus claims to be eternal, forever. How do you place your identity in Jesus? You, you trust in him, and instead of using your own works, your own example, your own working to get in a relationship with God, you trust in Jesus who willingly offers his identity to you. And that switch that happens through belief is a very important one. 
And some of us have deep identities in what we do. Maybe you say it's not in money. Yes, but it's in a position that you have. And your confidence comes from your position. Your confidence comes from who you know. Your confidence comes from what family you're a part of. Your confidence comes from I can get a job wherever I want and everyone wants me. Your confidence comes from that. And James says, there comes a day when that will all be taken away. And what will you have when that is gone? The story continues in James. The story continues. If you're going to mature in your faith, you're going to have to get really tested. Not like tested for, oops, did I skip? Go back for me, Rob. Not tested like you think you're getting tested, but a different kind of testing. You're going to have to understand the depth of what's going on there. And that's where it says in verse 12, Blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trial, for when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, he says there's coming a day when there are actually rewards, not salvation. You don't get into heaven by working harder, but there are rewards in heaven, in eternity, and we can't even get into that this morning, but there is some sort of system in place a stewardship system that based upon how we handle the things in our life as Christians, that there's some sort of repercussions for all eternity. I don't know if you knew that or not. A lot of Christians don't know this. A lot of people don't realize this. This is not, a, this, this is not to be confused with earning our salvation. There is some sort of system which Jesus talks about rewards. I mean, James's older brother was Jesus, so I think he stole it from listening to his older brother talk a lot, actually. A lot of scholars say that about all the stuff we find in James. Boy, that sounds like Jesus. Well, that makes sense. They're related. But he says, don't be confused by this, this tempting and this testing. Now, the, the, the Greek word for tempt is also the Greek word for test. That's why they often get really confused. So to us, those are two different words, but for the first hearers, these are the same word. And so James is trying to sort this out and say, don't be confused between tempt and test. God doesn't tempt, he just tests. God himself is not tempted, he, te he is tested though. Jesus was tested in the desert. So essentially what James is saying is, let no one say when they are tempted or tested, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no, tempts no one. God tests. But it could go either way. We are tempted. And each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And I say to that, Finally, a fishing analogy. Okay? I am a fly fisherman. Not a very good one, but I am a fly fisherman. Most of you aren't, but too bad it's in the text, so I have to use the analogy. Okay? This isn't a sports analogy. This is a Bible analogy. But this word lure is actually a fishing analogy. It's a great analogy. Well, some of you don't know how fly fishing works. Okay? There are many different ways to lure a fish in and hook them. 
Recently, I was on a fishing trip. I found out the fish weren't actually biting stuff that was on the surface. This is a dry fly. Does anyone know what kind of fly that is? Anyone? No one? I think it's just a generic one, actually. <laughs> it's just like a big bug, okay? These kind of flies, actually, the really small, dumb fish go for. But you rarely get a very large, seasoned, veteran, wise fish. Why? Because most of the wise fish sit on the bottom of the river, hidden by shadows, dark, they're out of the sunlight, you can't see them, predators can't get them, plus they can see everything above them, and so they can make better decisions. See, fish actually think like this, right? But they're always hungry. And so if you actually want to get a fish on a big fish, you can't put your hook on the top of the water. You have to put it down low. You have to weight it down and let it stumble along the bottom of the river. You have to put a little weight on it. You have to mimic a little thing called a nymph, and it's a little tiny bug. I don't know how they eat it or why they eat it, but apparently, plus larger fish, they don't want to work too hard, right? So they're like college students, right? They just want to sit there and have the food kind of go right by them and just eat like this, okay? So how do you lure a huge, smart fish if you want to catch him? Well, you get the right lure. It's amazing how large a fish you can get when you got the right lure. Guess what? You and I have desires. We're very different. They may be different desires. Some of you have sexual desires, and they're out of control. Some of you have financial desires, and they're out of control. Some of you have family and friendship desires, and they're out of control. They run you. They rule you. Some of you have power desires and, important, and identity desires. And guess what? Satan's like an incredibly smart fisherman who will use a lure and he'll get you. That's where he's out to do. Now, why did I tell you all that stuff? Because God actually wants to mature your faith and Satan, your enemy, wants to destroy it. So God wants to take your desires and mature you and help you and understand you. He, he might allow them to help test you, but Satan just wants to hook you. He just wants to destroy you. He doesn't care. His goal is not to make you a more faithful Christian in Jesus Christ. His desire is to hook you and get you so distracted you'll be downstream, nowhere near the food source. He wants to rip you out of the water and have you gasping for air. He wants to fill at you. That's his desire. That's not God's. That's why it says God doesn't tempt you like this. He doesn't use your desire to hook you and get you and, and, and destroy you. So we've got to pay attention to our desires. And if you want to mature in your faith, you're going to have to pay attention to your desire, your blind spot, so to speak, because I can guarantee you Satan is custom-making lures for you. And he knows if you're a bottom feeder, he can't dangle a big flashy hook on top of the water and get you to come up and bite it. He understands that. And so what does he do? You want to just sit there? He just dangles it so it just comes right by you. So all you have to do is just... And he's got you. So what is James trying to say? You're going to need some wisdom to understand. 
your own desires, your own blind spots. Where are you weak? Where do you know you're weak? Some of you are like, I don't even know where I'm weak. Hey, here's your chance to mature in this. That maturity comes from knowing, not, not being perfect, but knowing your own desires, knowing where you're weak, knowing, man, I, I'm a bottom feeder. If he drops that right here, I can't be there. I've got to go to the top. It's going to require humility to admit your weaknesses. One of the things I, I'll say this, one of the things I hate about being a pastor is is you live in a fishbowl. That's not the mixed metaphor here, by the way. Everyone watches what you do, and so I'll just say it out loud. Some of you know me and joke about me being 100% Trev, right? Anyone joked about me being 100% Trev? It's hilarious to you. The reason why I say 100% Trev is I get, I get I'm, a, I'm an all-in guy. So it doesn't even matter what the hobby is. It's like, you know, if I start being interested in running by the afternoon. I've got, you know, the Ironman watch. I've got a treadmill, you know. I've got a membership to running room. By the afternoon, I haven't even gone on a run yet. That's the kind of person I am, right? That's my blind spot. I'm not always enticed by these really crazy, destructive things. I'm enticed by the slow taking over of my attention, that I can get sidetracked by things like running. I can get sidetracked by things like sports. I can get sidetracked by things like hobbies. Far easier than I care to admit. I hate that about myself, but I know that's my blind spot. I know it's my weakness. And if I don't want to get lured in by those desires that really aren't evil desires, they're just desires. But if I don't want to get lured in for them, I've got to tell my wife, babe, if you see me going after these things, you have to tell me. My friends, if you see me just kind of going all in too much, I want you to say something or at least like poke fun or joke because this is a blind spot for me. I know this is a weakness. I know this is a desire that can turn, turn bad fast. So see what I mean Humility is not saying you have everything together. Humility is being willing to admit, I have some blind spots here. I have some things that could easily entice me. I have some ways that Satan could dig his hook into me, and I've got to watch out for those. And I'm going to need wisdom, and I'm going to need humility. I'm going to need wisdom to know where they are, and when, to, when they're real desires and not real desires, I'm going to need humility to admit them and to confess my sin to others and to engage with community. See how this text is starting to flow together. So I don't know what your custom lure is, friends. I can only imagine that the spectrum's pretty wide in this room. That there's a whole lot of different kind of custom lures that Satan's ready to put out there. But I can say this to you. Watch out because you will see the lure on the way home from church today. I can almost guarantee that. It happens that easily. It happens that fast. So what is it, friends? What's your lure? How are you allured away from a maturing relationship in Jesus Christ? How are you distracted? Maybe it's overt sins, things that habitually are sinful. They're against what God says, and you know, and you need help. Ask for help. 
You've got to ask for help. Maybe these are a little more subtle and you don't really realize them or you actually don't have the courage to just face up to them and say, I think this is a blind spot for me. I think this is a weakness for me. I don't want it to be, but I'm going to ask for the wisdom and ask for the humility to embrace it. This isn't an easy word, is it? It's a hard word for us. I've prayed a lot for us. Because I have this strange feeling that because we're in the book of James, that God is actually going to start ask, answering our prayers of maturing our faith. And things are going to come in your life, and they're going to test your patience, your courage, your purity. They're going to test what you really think about your money. They're going to test what you really think about your faith in God. And these kind of tests are going to continually call you out to prove it. Not to earn your salvation to God, don't get that confused, but to prove that your faith that you say is really real. James ends simply by saying, one of the things you're always going to have to make a decision on is whether you believe God is actually good and he actually cares and wants to mature your faith. That's why it says in the text, don't be deceived, my brothers. God is always good. It's kind of like his, his last word is, is, is if you think all these things are coming to you because there's going to be a temptation. How many of you, this temptation is, hey, I've done all this for you, God. What are you doing to me? Why do we do that? Because we don't believe God actually is good and has his best intentions for us. We think he's doing something wrong. And so he says, don't be deceived. Every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father. I can't go into the whole text. All I can say is, one of the things you are going to have to decide if you want to mature in your faith in Jesus Christ is, do you believe that God is always good. You're going to have to make that decision before you move on. Because everything else relies on this very thing. Because if he's good, then what he's bringing to you is going to be helpful, not harmful. And if he's good, then you can see it through to the end. And if he's good, then you can trust him through whatever trial you have. There's a phrase that Christians sometimes use, and it sounds cheesy to you, but it's very true. And sometimes pastors say, it says, God is good, and then people respond all the time. And then the pastor says, all the time, and people respond, God is good. Now, it sounds maybe cheesy, maybe churchy to you. Here's the reality. That is a really important thing to believe, that God is good and that he's good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And so I leave you with that decision as I call the band up, as Joel and the band are going to lead. We have an opportunity to respond here. We have something called, um, we call it the Lord's Table. You might know it as Eucharist, depending on your tradition. You might know it as communion. This isn't a magic this isn't the magic gospel dust that you take to just absolve all your sins. It doesn't work that way. There's nothing magical about these elements, but they're very, very important to us. Why? Because by taking them, we are saying, I really believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. 
I really believe that salvation is only found in Jesus Christ and not in my money, not in my, not in my stature, that my identity is in Jesus Christ. And so we don't want you to take that lightly. In fact, we say by coming forward and partaking, you are proclaiming this. So my friends, don't lie about it. You may fool us, but you do not fool God. And this is an opportunity for us to show, is our faith really real? To state publicly for ourselves and to our church family, no, I'm not perfect, but that's my Savior. Jesus is my identity. I believe this. I would stake my life on this. And these elements represent cup and bread. The cup is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The bread is the body of Jesus Christ. And so what you are partaking is, I believe that God came to this earth as Jesus Christ. And I believe that he just didn't come as a good teacher, as a good example, but that he died on the cross in my place for my sins. And he shed his blood. And because of his shed blood and my trust in him, I have forgiveness of sins. And so it's a way of proclaiming that your identity is in Jesus Christ. And so there's an opportunity here, friends. Do you believe Jesus Christ is your full identity? Do you trust him as your Savior? Come forward and prove it. Joel.